G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 33 of the 1 in 5000 podcast where we're talking IARM. and today I'm very pleased to say we are joined by Laurie who is an ARM parent from America who is also the executive officer of the Pull Through Network. G'day Laurie. G'day Greg, how are you doing? I'm very good. So Laurie, you shared part of your story in the book, which is story number 106 on page 233. So would you be able to just go through your story in the book for us first? Sure, I'd be happy to. I titled mine from a mom who has been there, done that, because our daughter at the time I wrote this, Carly was 27. You know, it's kind of been a long time since we've been active, you know, the surgeries and such. And, uh, but we've also seen a lot. Um, this is what I wrote. Our daughter was born 27 years ago with Bachdrill, including cloaca. And with Bachdrill, she had all the parts except for the TE. She was our first child and was born full term after an uneventful pregnancy. We were told when she was about three hours old that she had an imperfect anus. What do you mean? She doesn't have an anus? How is that even possible? And a heart murmur. They told us they would be sending her to the children's hospital in the middle of a snowstorm about 40 miles away. And we couldn't go with her because the interstate was closed and that she might, may require surgery. I think I spent the next nine days in shock, basically, as we learned about her other diagnoses during her NICU stay. She did not receive that emergency surgery since she had a fistula and had passed her meconium. However, she should have and did end up having to have an emergency surgery to create a colostomy when she was 39 days old. In 1993, when there was no internet, we had to find other ways to find medical experts and get second opinions. I learned quickly though, that I had to trust myself and not to believe everything the doctors said. Here are some things I've learned over the years in no particular order. Ask questions, do your own research and educate yourself. Take time for yourself. Be prepared for the unexpected. Find support for your family, parents, affected child and siblings. The pull-through network in the USA has been a lifesaver for our family. Get a second or third opinion. Trust your gut instincts. Remember bowel management is trial and error. What works for one family may not work for you and vice versa. No one knows your child better than you do. For hospital stays, bring comfort items, blankets, pillows, slippers, favorite toys, games for your child and for yourself, along with plenty of snacks, phone chargers, and something to take notes on. Teach someone else, a family member or friend, to take care of your child so you can take a break then take a break for a day, a weekend trip, or even a week-long trip. If you can, go back to work. It will help give you purpose and allow your child to depend on themselves and other adults, not just you. Don't believe everything you read on the internet, including Facebook. Remember, no two ARM patients are alike. Each one is unique. Just because a doctor says something doesn't necessarily mean it's true or pertains to your child. Doctors and nurses are human too. 
They make mistakes and have bad days like the rest of us. Experience is important, but not the only factor in choosing the right doctor for your child or your family. Take notes at each clinic visit and during every inpatient stay. Keep a record of medications, procedures, surgeries, therapies, etc. Ask for copies of x-rays, CTs, MRIs, and app notes when they occur. And always give yourself grace. Don't fret about decisions made in the past. You can only do the best you can with the information you have at that time. Well, Lori, I reckon that encompasses everything that an ARM parent needs to know about their journey ahead. When I read it for the first time, when you sent it to me, I thought, we don't need the book. We could just put those up, those points up. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, ta- it does take, you know, for me, you know, almost 30 years to learn all those things. It's, and it's not an easy thing. You know, so, so many parents, you know, especially if it's your first child, like Carly was for us, it's, you don't know where to begin or what questions to ask, or especially after a diagnosis that you've never, ever heard of or even dreamt was possible. Yes, and we're coming from a time where there was no internet. You would even be struggling to find a description of ARM in a, an encyclopedia even then. Exactly, yeah. It was, it was a, a very different time. And, you know, my husband went to, actually went to a, a medical library to get some research on and perfect anus and then on Voctrol and you know, to find experts, you know, now you, you know, can Google doctors all over the country, but I had to use the yellow pages, you know, those things in a phone book that the phone book doesn't even exist and called the operator to get numbers for some of the major uh, children's hospitals across the country. And then I called them and asked to talk to their pediatric surgeon and just asked them, if this is, was your daughter with born with cloaca, who would you have do the surgery? When I made them think in the perspective of their own child, you know, I got some different answers. So in your experience, not only as being a parent yourself, but also with your work through the Pool Food Network, what do you believe are really the most important things that you would convey to the parent? You've listed them there in no particular order, but if if I had to say, say the top five, what do you think they would be? Oh, I think one of the first things that I learned quickly, and it took my husband a little bit longer to learn, is that we have to trust ourselves and also be willing to ask doctors questions and not automatically believe everything they say, you know, is the best answer or, or that you can go get a second opinion and not feel like you're second guessing your, the doctors. That was, that was something that we have to learn quickly and be able to question and say, why are we doing this? Or is this necessary? Or, you know, how many, you just asking the question of how many surgeries like this have you done? This doctor is supposed to be the authority figure and you're questioning that. And I think a lot of people, you know, struggle with that initially. It's changed a bit in the generations, isn't it? Because, you know, the doctors were sort of like the godlike figures and the surgeons, right. weren't they? Absolutely. 
Yeah, I think I think you know we've we've done a lot for parents and and patients to be able to be more a part of their care or their child's care, but also and, and advocate for themselves more. But it, it's taken us a long time to get comfortable with that position. Yep. I know my, in uh, our situation, like, you know, there was no doubt that with my doctors and that my parents and myself, we wouldn't even think to question them. Right. Exactly. I mean, we le- I learned quick. We had a situation when, so before Carly had her colostomy at 39 days, she spit up a lot. Well, the, the pediatrician we had at the time thought it was reflux and prescribed Zantac, which was know, pretty common, but I picked up the bottle of liquid Zantac and it had a dosage of two teaspoons. At that point, she was about maybe three, four weeks old. And we were struggling to get, you know, two teaspoons of milk in her. So I said, there's no way this dosage is right. And so there was a case where, you know, I called the pharmacist and said, and I'll question them and gave them the, the Carly's weight. And they're like, oh, that should be two cc's, not, or two mls, not two teaspoons. It's like, oh, well, it's a big difference. Yeah. So she never took any of that Zantac. She never took any of that medication. It wasn't reflux anyway. It was because she had no room in her colon. She was spitting everything back up. Okay. And so some of the other important parts? I think. Look for support for yourself, educate yourself quickly. Taking time for yourself is so important. I said, you know, for moms, especially going back to work, if I have any regrets about how, you know, we dealt with our family situation is that I didn't go back to work. And we had some issues when Carly was older where, you know, she was a little bit too dependent on me. I felt, and I think if I had gone back to work earlier, that she might have figured out, you know, had to depend on itself a little greater. One issue that I'm sure you've seen that comes across a a lot is how did you deal with the why me situation? Like with a lot of parents, they beat (laughs) themselves up, don't they? Why did it happen? And Right. No, I totally, I think. I mean, I think parents and then the affected child adults, you know, we all have that. Why me? You know, for moms, especially, I you know I'll admit there's a mom guilt, even though, you know, and research shows, you know, that, you know, this is a, a fluke, you know, that happened and we we didn't do anything wrong. You still you grew this child in your womb. You feel like, you know, you have to be responsible in some way. I've pushed that thought back numerous times over the years, but we do have to try to listen to, you know, the researchers and such and take heart and believe that it really is nothing that we could have done differently. And, and it goes back to what I've said, you know, towards the end is that even if there was something we did, this, this occurs at such an early spot in the growth gestationally that many, you know, moms don't even know they're pregnant. So we don't, you know, you're not even thinking about what you're doing, but we can't beat ourselves up 
over things that we did in the past that we didn't know, you know, was wrong or you know, even know what was happening. So we just have to learn and and move forward and do better if necessary. Great advice. And as I say to a lot of parents, even the greatest medical minds and scientific minds in the world have grappled with this cause for years and haven't came up with an answer. So it's something that you're never going to get the answer that you need in effect. Right, right. We just, I mean, I I think we ought all, you know, maybe benefit some if we knew there was a cause and that way we could do better going forward by, you know, educating new moms or moms-to-be that, you know, this can occur if you do X, Y, Z. So let's not do X, Y, Z if you're trying to have a baby. But um, until that happens, there's, you know, the research so far shows that, you know, it's, it just happened. I mean, when I, when Carly was little, I would thought, I thought about it and you think about all the things that have to occur in the right order at the right time for a healthy human baby to be born. You know, it's amazing that there aren't more congenital anomalies out there and more things. You know, it's it's more of a miracle that you have a child that doesn't have any issues, really. You mentioned that your husband, Doug, did it, do some medical research. I like to ask, how did Doug handle it as well? I think he, at the time when Carly was a baby, he... He just had to, he felt like he had to do some of the research and try and get the information for me because I was there at the hospital with Carly and, and then even at home, you know, I was doing all the minute to minute care and such. So um, I think he dealt with it by keeping himself busy. He took care of all the hospital bills and all the insurance stuff. And that was his way of participating and taking care of things. And then as Carly got older, well, we found the UOA, the United Asking Association, when Carly was three, were introduced to pull-through network about the same time. And he started, it was at that first conference we went to that he started talking to other dads. And so he had the opportunity to you know, I think dads do handle these things completely differently. And no doubt. being able to talk with other dads was, I think, comforting to him. And it gave him, you know, it was a safe place to be, you know, with other dads that understood. You just touched on the pool food network. So can you give us an, an idea of the impact it has, it's had on your life and your families? and I believe it's such an vital part of the USA ARM community personally. Well, I mean, Pull Through Network gave us a, a connection so that we weren't alone. Like I said, we discovered it or were introduced to it in about 1996 when Carly was three. And uh, back then, it was kind of a, a quarterly newsletter of a couple pages that was mailed out. And then in 1996 was about the time that email was coming to light. They 
started an email listserv. And so this listserv allowed me to email, you know, I don't, I don't, I, I don't remember how many families were part of it back then, but it allowed me to email these other moms that had ARM kids and knew what I was talking about. It was in 96 that we were also starting enemas for the first time, rectal enemas. And the directions we got from our doctor were, was basically, you know, you need to get this bag and this tube and you, and do this. And, and it was like, I have no idea what you're talking about, (laughs) you know, and, and, you know, there really wasn't much of bowel management back then. I talked to another mom or emailed another mom, poultry network on the listserv. And she told me, you know, what bag I needed and what, you know, a gravity feed bag and get this Foley catheter and make sure it's not latex and use this much salt and all this. So, I mean, she emailed me all the directions to do a rectal enema. And it was, that was our connection. It was a very active listserv. There were families, I mean, I knew these people, never met them, but I felt like they were, you know, my closest friends across the U.S., and so, and it was through that listserv then, and our introduction to United Osmia Association, UOA, they've had a conference every summer and Poultry Network kind of was a chapter of UOA back then. And so we had a couple sessions each summer where we could meet. We took Carly in 96 and went to just a couple sessions and then every year after that, that was our summer vacation. We went to the UOA conference, saw new families with ARM, had a few sessions, did some fun activities with them, and just felt like, you know, we had another family. And it, it made sure, and we took our younger daughter, Katie, who was, you know, when she was three, we took her the first time. And, you know, she met other siblings that were living, you know, having to share bathrooms with their sibling that's doing, you know, a rectal enema every night and what that was like. And so from a very early age, we made sure that both of our girls knew other kids that were, you know, experiencing the same types of things at home. And that is so incredibly important, especially with the siblings, because rightly or wrongly, and, you know, sometimes the siblings do get different attention don't they absolutely absolutely and it's and it's no one's fault it's nope. just how things have to occur at home you know we spent a ton of time with Carly either in the bathroom doing enemas or away from home you know for doctor's appointments and things and Katie also often got left you know with grandparents and and things and um you know, it's just, we couldn't help it. It was just how things had to play out. Yep. So when did your, like, official involvement in the PTN start? So in 2005, uh, the UOA actually disbanded. And so uh, as, as a culture chap- network was a chapter of UOA until 2005, when UOA disbanded, 
we had to get our own 501c3 status to remain nonprofit. And at that time, then we had to come up with our own, you know, president and a, a executive committee. And the executive director at that time was Bonnie McElroy. And she invited me to be part of our, the initial board of directors in 2005. There were five of us at that time. And of the five original ones, I'm the only one left. In 2012, Bonnie uh, stepped down as executive director and I took over. So I've been executive director now since 2012. It's a passion of mine. I feel like it's, you know, Poulter Network is a purpose for me to help provide the answers and the support for new families that, you know, are, are similar to myself when, you know, we started out and, and just that feeling of aloneness and, and shock and that why me that you brought up um, that we experienced when Carly was born, you know, I want to do my part to help make sure other parents don't have those same feelings or can move past those feelings at a quicker rate. Well, you're certainly doing that, I can assure you. Oh, thank you. I know myself, and I'll give my little insight into how the pull-through network has affected my life, is because in 2016, (laughs) I travelled all the way from Melbourne to Orlando to attend the first pull-through network conference. And I can't describe in words what it meant to me and how it changed my life i wrote in my book that i know the first morning that there was the breakfast there i walked in and it was the first time in my life where i felt i belonged in a room that's wonderful Greg. yeah i mean i'm sorry it took so long for you to be able to walk into a room and feel so comfortable but I'm so glad you were able to do that. Yep. And I was a bit shy back then too, wasn't I? <laughs> <laughs> you were a little bit. Yeah. yeah. You, you've, you've grown a lot over the last six years. Oh, well, it's all thanks to you guys. I can, I can absolutely att- attest to that because that's how I connected with the other adults and the families right. and more importantly, that the opportunity to talk to the the doctors about the lived experience from like my I know that first that in that that year that myself Alan and Chels got up and uh shared our stories into the conference to everybody which is you know was a pretty confronting thing for a lot of the parents to hear and for the adult and for the doctors to be honest sure yeah yeah I think it's I think you know as we've done it should have done it twice since then. We've done it only once because of COVID, but we have a greater number of affected adults planning to attend the conference this summer. And the more adults we have there and the more opportunities that you have to continue speaking with the doctors, uh, I think you're, you're the catalyst to a lot of the change that's happening. So. Yeah, well, I like to think that we've, really push the transition of care and the mental health side of things yes yes Uh, and that's so important so 
can you give us a bit of a, for those who might not be aware of the conference coming up in July, so can you just give us some details, Laurie, of where it is and when it is? Sure. So Poulter Network hosts a, a national conference every other summer, and this summer it'll be in Phoenix, Arizona, July 20th through the 24th. We started, as I mentioned earlier, that you know PTN kind of piggybacked with the UOA during their annual conferences. And then when PTN became their own nonprofit, we knew we needed a little bit of time to get our feet under us before we could host our own national conference. But we did that in 2008. And we had about, I believe it was around 40 families attend in 2008. And that was in St. Louis. Two years later, we grew. We had a, our conference in Tucson, Arizona, and we had grown to about 60 families. Fast forward to 2018, we were in Phoenix again, and we had over 100 families attend. I believe it was about 30 doctors present in 2018. So, of course, we had to cancel the 2020 conference because of COVID which was devastating to all of us. So we're ready and so excited about seeing all of our friends and family again in uh, Phoenix in uh, July. Right now we have about 85 to 90 families registered and we are gonna have about, I think we're around 50 speakers. So that's doctors and nurses that are, you know, the ARN experts across the country that will be speaking and collaborating with each other to help educate the parents and then and answer questions. One of the best parts of the conference is our Ask the Expert roundtables. Yes. Um, and it's a chance for where you have three health practitioners at a table and we invite two to three families. So, you know, we can't do one-on-one -on -one consultations, but in a small group setting, you get to ask a lot of your own very specific questions and have the experts right there at the table talk to you directly. The doctors are all so approachable during the conference. They eat their meals with us. So families often are sitting at the table with one or two doctors during lunch and dinner. And, you know, it's, it's fun for the doctors to be able to see the kids in a non-clinical setting, you know, and help, that helps remind them that, you know, these are kids and the care that they provide is, has a big setting on their quality of life. So, you know, they want, it's, I think it's a great opportunity for the doctors to, you know, see the families in different, a different setting. In a way too, it gets back to what we were saying earlier about how, whether you to question the doctors, because, in this setting, it becomes sort of like an even relationship. Yes, it definitely does. And, and the doctors are, you know, much more relaxed and they have a good time at our conference. And I know they look forward to it as much as our families do. As important as the educational sessions are that we arrange is the social times, the meals where we sit and, and chat with each other share stories. We'd have fun activities every night after dinner. 
but it's also in our kids' playroom where the kids are in there playing with one another. They don't know whether they're the affected kid or the sibling. They all play together, but the kids are so relaxed. It's not like being at school where they have to worry if they might have an accident or a leak or, you know, they, there might be a smell associated. There's none of that stress and anxiety that the kids often have at school in our playroom. It's like they already know that, you know, it's a safe place. You know, they don't have to worry about everybody understands. They've all dealt with it in one way or another. And so it's, it's not, it's not a big deal. It's not, it's a non-issue. And if something happens, then they just take care of it. It's not anything to, you know, try to hide or shy away from. It, it just is, it's so much fun to watch the kids play and just be kids, worry about anything else. It's an incredibly safe environment for them. That makes so such a difference. In Orlando, I gave, the day after I gave me talk, I had a little kid, I would have a little kid, he would have been about eight or nine, come up to me and says, Hi, Mr. Greg. I just wanted to let you know that I've I've got a bottom just like yours. And fair dinkum, I I I had to hold hold back, not bursting into tears at that time. Sure. I still right, yeah, like just to and to know that these kids are not going to grow up alone like most of us adults have. That to me is the most important thing for the whole thing is that they understand that they are not alone. Absolutely, they. They make, you know, lifelong friends. The USA also has a program called Youth Rally, which is a camp for kids with bowel and bladder disorders that meets on a college campus. Unfortunately, they've been virtual the last three years because of COVID, but it's another place where our kids can go and meet other kids like themselves and they make lifelong friends there as well. But I think for our conference, it's often the siblings that are making their, because at, at camp, all the affected kids go to camp and, you know, they have their, you know, their things all the time. And one of the things that has been so important to me, because I do have a second child, I have that sibling in our family that, you know, they've seen the extra things that her sister's gotten to do because of her diagnosis and not that it's fun very often, but it yeah. seems like it's extra things, you know, when you're a kid, it does, you know, we would go to Cincinnati and when we go to Cincinnati, we would find fun things to do. Well, but the other one was at home with grandparents and going to school. So, you know, that's not much fun. So one of the thing that's very important to me at our conference is that we have a siblings program. And I'm so super proud that my sibling and our family is, she's 26 now, is she's now running that program. Oh, that's um, with, magnificent. With her best friend, who is another sibling. And they met each other when they were nine years old in 2005. And they've been best friends, one living in Illinois and one living in California for you know, what is that? They were nine, so 16, 17 years. They've been best friends. And so now they run the 
siblings program and they make sure that siblings understand that you know they're special too and they have feelings and it's okay for them to have those feelings so yeah that's that's one of the things that you know is close to my heart with our conferences doing the sibling program and then i'm really proud of the number of the increase in the number of affected adults that we have attending and i think we're over 20 last time i counted of affected adults attending so that's awesome and that's from age 20 up to i think our oldest one is 75 it's amazing i can't wait to get there i've already booked my tickets so i'm heading awesome. over there as always I'm so I'm excited would, greg i wouldn't miss it for the world laurie and just so all the listeners are aware that Carly is aware that you are sharing her story and your story and that she has given permission to do that, Laurie, which is, I think is very important. It is. It's very important, Greg. And I think, you know, we parents have to be careful as to how much we share about our you know, child's condition online, especially because we just don't know how long it might last or where it might resurface. And, you know, I struggle a little bit as a parent because I've heard from adults saying that it's the child's story to tell. And you're right, it is, but there, it's also a parent's story to tell. So we have to find, you know, the way to make it so we keep our child private, her, their Things, you know, especially their their pictures, especially, I think we need to keep those things as private as possible without giving away uh, too many details about their, their life, their diagnosis, their day-to-day struggles, maybe. But at the same time, we as parents need to be able to share our story and our struggles. And so it, it's a fine line we walk. But I think we parents do need to be careful about how, how much, how much and what it is that they're sharing. And we can talk about our, our struggles. You know, we've been in the hospital and how tiring that is and, or frustrating or, you know, we're here for another surgery, but keep the, the actual particulars you know, as private as possible. And do you find that as uh, Carly's grown up, you're, attitude or insight has changed any from that from that perspective yes when carly was younger we didn't have facebook no <laughs> so it's true yes. So, yes so i kind of got away from that now i we did have a care page similar to caring bridge so that was something that where i did share carly's story especially you know all of different hospitalizations and such and I don't really know comparatively how much more private. I mean, it's definitely more private than Facebook, but haven't tried to search things myself, although care pages has been shut down now. So I don't know that there's anything really left out there on care pages, but it was something that I had to invite people to be able to yep. you know, go to and see. So that was the way we shared, you know, our trials and tribulations and, and such. One of the things I've marveled at over the years due to the internet 
I find it, I find the internet a, a blessing and a curse for new parents, actually, because there's so much information out there and it can easily become overwhelming, especially when you have to figure out what to believe and how much, what's accurate and what's not accurate. And you can have, have all that information, you know, at your fingertips and a, and a click of a few buttons, a few keys. Whereas when Carly was born, you know, it took us, you know, a good six months, six to nine months to, you know, be able to get books checked out of the uh, medical library and read it and figure out what, what we were actually <laughs> reading. And, and the information I felt the information we got came to us a little more slowly, but it, I think it gave us more time to digest things yes. and, and we learned things more slowly, but I feel like we had an opportunity to learn at a, a slower pace and didn't have, you know, there's some scary things out there. ARM can be pretty scary if you look at the wrong thing and it doesn't need to be that way. So it's, I think it's definitely a blessing and a curse, but it's one thing that, you know, we need to, I think parents just need to be mindful of oversharing. That's very good advice. And I know that my default position's always been, I'm not a doctor. Another parent's not a doctor is if you've got Absolutely. a if you've got an issue, talk to your doctor. Because Absolutely. I totally agree. I totally because agree. Because we get the support groups are wonderful and I should know because I run one. Right, <laughs> um, right. The issue is someone may have an issue that a parent may have an issue that they feel that needs to be addressed right away. Even like to say it's a stink skincare issue or whatever, but you might get 10 different answers, but every one of those 10 different answers worked for the parent that provided that answer. Right. right. As you say in your story, not one ARM patient is the same. It is, I mean, and that's what I think makes ARM so challenging is that there's not just one treatment. There's not and definitely no cure. You know, and so it's difficult, you know, to know that, you know, just because it worked well for some one person, it doesn't mean it's going to work for the next one. And it's just, and, and that is, that is a struggle and a challenge. And it's that, that's one thing that's never going to go away. I don't, nope. I believe there's, there's never going to be, you know, a one, one and done. I can attest to that. Well, Lori. I can't thank you enough for joining us and giving us such a wonderful insight into your life as a parent and especially as the executive director of the Pool Fair Network. And I would encourage any listeners who are listening, if you are able to register to go to the conference because it would have such an impact on not only your lives, but your child's or their siblings as well. So Thanks very much, Laurie. It's been wonderful. Thank you, Greg. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.